So um, I'd just like to welcome you tonight to River Church for those who are here and those who are online. And um, yeah, we're just, we're going to, we're going to do some fun stuff tonight. And actually we're going to start in Mark 6. So if you'll turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to read something. I'm going to read it in two different places in the New Testament to sort of kick us off here. And you know this really well. You know what this, this passage is. And I'm reading out of New American Standard. So sometimes it might not read quite the same as if you're in King James or New King James. But in Mark 6, verses 1 through 6, it says, He went out from there. He came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him and by such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. So here we see that they have rejected him, but what's not really said in Mark is what's explained in Luke. So if you'll turn to Luke, Luke chapter 4. But obviously, they, they definitely rejected him. If you uh, look at Luke 4, starting in verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow on the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. Okay, well I think Luke, as he's prone to do, includes a lot more details than we saw in Mark. Okay, so we have Jesus who has gone back to his hometown. 
And people are like, oh, that's Jesus. That's like Mary and Joseph's son, right? Where's he been? Somebody's like, oh, yeah, he's not going to let us walk about with fishermen. You know, they're going around, they're doing this stuff, and he just came home. Isn't it nice of him come see his mama? And so he reads this, and then he says, today this is fulfilled. And they're going, hmm, who is, wait a minute. And so then he starts telling them these things, and they get really offended. And they're like, no. And then, of all the things, they take him out, and they're going to throw him off the cliff. I mean, really. We went from, hey, this is a cool hometown boy, to let's kill him. Wow. What caused this? I mean, it is true that, in general, hometowns are a little hard on their heroes. But really? So what I'm going to tell you is that he violated what I call the latitude of acceptability. There, is, there are these boundaries that we have within the church and within society about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And Jesus violated them because he claimed to be something that they didn't think he possibly could be because he was from there. Right? Right. It's like he goes to all these other places and they're very accepting of him. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, he's the Messiah. He's, you know, he's doing all these things. You know, wow, he's awesome. He goes to his hometown and they're like, no, you're, you're Mary and Joseph's son. You can't, you can't be this. So what he said and who he, he said he was violated their latitude of acceptability. And I'm here to tell you that that latitude of acceptability is still around. It's in our society, and it's also within the church. Because if you think about it, in society, are there certain norms that we're supposed to follow? Yeah, yes. right? Yes. It's like, you know, you do these things, ooh, don't stray out of the, out of the box. We're going to stay in the box. And sometimes it's even worse in the church, right? Because, you know, Barry talked about this actually on Sunday in um, our offering message. But in 2 Timothy 3.5, it says, it talks about holding on to a form of godliness, although they deny the power. There are a lot of Christian churches that fall into that category. They like routines. They like seasons. They like festivals. They like a lot of things. They like to say, we are Christians, but what they don't like is the power. They don't want to access the power. Right? And the people who do say, I want to access God's power. I know who I am in Christ, and I can do this because of Christ who lives inside me. They definitely violate the latitude of acceptability. Right? So what was true in Jesus' day is still true in our day. So often when God gives us an opportunity, he provides something that he says, I would really like for you to go do this for me because I need you to do this stuff in the world because I'm not down there. It will very likely violate that latitude of acceptability. He will ask you to do something that the world goes, that doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? No, don't do that. I can't believe. Why would you even think that's possible? 
And that is one of the reasons that I wanted to use that first video, because we're no longer slaves to fear. It is usually fear that keeps people from going out and doing the things that God asked them to do. Not necessarily fear of God, but fear of man. Fear of people ridiculing them. Fear of standing out from the crowd, because it's like, well, what happens if I fail? Right. And not only will they make fun of me then, but just think. But you know, think about, think about Noah. The man spent what, uh, more than 100 years building a boat? And these people never seen rain. I mean, honestly, he was way outside the latitude of acceptability. Because people were making fun of him. But I'm, I'm guessing when they started seeing the animals arriving, they thought something was up. And then when the rain started falling, they thought, maybe he's not crazy. Right? Sometimes God gives us these opportunities to do things, and we have to make the decision to do it regardless of what society or the church or our friends or our family might think. Okay? So on Sunday, I started talking about opportunities, and I'd like to continue tonight to talk about them and talk about how we react to them. Because on Sunday, we established that opportunities can come from God, and we said that they can be very meaningful for us because they show us that He's a good Father. They also allow us to gain testimonies that empower both us and our fellow Christians, and they propel us forward. They move us forward where we need to be. So tonight, I wanted to start with what I saw was a definition that somebody gave about what success is. And he said, success is doing the best you can with what you have where you are. And I thought, that's not bad, doing the best you can with what you have where you are. I mean, God probably wouldn't ask more than that, right? So, but where you are and what your focus is on can really determine if you're going to be successful. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read something out of the Passion. It's um, in Hebrews. I always have to leave markers for myself with Hebrews because I always have trouble finding Hebrews. I don't know why. Okay, this is um, Hebrews 11. It's gonna be 15 and 16. And actually, Pastor used this recently. I'm looking at it just a little differently. And um, it goes through and it talks about all these heroes. And it says, and if their hearts were still remembering what they left behind, they would have found an opportunity to go back. I kind of like that because what they would be dwelling on is what opportunities would show up, right? It's what you're thinking on is what you're drawing to you. But they couldn't turn back for their hearts were fixed on what was far greater, that is, the heavenly realm. So they were looking forward, not backward. If you look backward, you're not really going to be moving forward very well, are you? I know this is true because I have a dog that does this. I will walk him, and he's, he's constantly looking behind him to, because he heard something. And it's like when he does that, he walks sideways, and then we get very slow. 
So you have to be focusing on what's in front of you. So their hearts were fixed on what was far greater, the heavenly realm. So one of the things we have to remember is that when God gives us an opportunity, we're not in it by ourselves. He's there with us. I think sometimes people feel like they get these opportunities and God's like, okay, there you go. See what you can do. But that's not really how God operates. Not at all. He doesn't leave us on our own. Um, in Romans 15, 4, it says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we went through the patience, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. God never leaves us without hope. You know? It says that what, these things are written for our learning, that we through patience. Sometimes it takes a little while for these opportunities to come full circle, right? Sometimes we have to have patience in the middle of them because we're thinking there is no way this is going to work out. We have to have patience because if God's in it, it will work out. But he never leaves us without hope. And in James 1.5, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if we need wisdom, which we will if God gives us a big opportunity, we're going to need his wisdom in carrying it out the way it should be done. It says he gives it to us generously. Yeah. And, you know, on Sunday I talked about R.G. Letourneau, and he would have these problems in designing these huge pieces of machinery. So he would go to God and he would ask, and God would always come through and give him these amazingly, like, forward-looking engineered products that even the engineers he had working for him would go, how is this going to work? And then they would build it, and it worked. You know, these ideas came from God. So he asked for God's wisdom and help, and he received it. If you ask, he's not going to say, no, I don't feel like that today. He's going to give it to you, right? So, yeah. So here's my question for you. Are you a good steward of the opportunities that God has provided for you? And we're going to talk about that tonight. So if you think about what is a steward? A steward is somebody who manages another's property or financial affairs. This is someone who oversees someone's property, you know, maybe um, some land, maybe uh, some finances. They are stewards of, of those resources, basically. For us, this means that we are stewards over God's kingdom. Right? The original stewards over, over the earth were Adam and Eve. How did they do? He gave them one, one rule not to break. And they did it, right? They messed it up. So I think you can make an argument that maybe they weren't the best stewards at that time. But God 
sends us opportunities and we are supposed to be stewards over those opportunities. That means that we take care of those opportunities. It's our, basically our job. We have been tasked with this. So we have to think about, are we being good caretakers of the opportunities that come before us in life? So if we look at every opportunity that he sends as a gift, then we know that he's going to build in help for us. We're going to have, we're going to use our faith, right? Um, and we know that through the faith that we have and through his help and his wisdom, we will actually, we can be very successful in the opportunities that he gives us. But if you think about it, you have to kind of be in the right place at the right time. Because if you're not exactly where you're supposed to be, sometimes those opportunities don't line up very well with you, right? So God might have to wait for you to kind of get there. So actually, opportunity in Greek means a serendipitous window of opportunity. Serendipitous basically means being in the right place at the right time. So it's like you might you might be on the exact aisle at Walmart you need to be in order to pray for somebody on the right day at the right time. Lynn was in the right place today at the right time to pray with someone. That is that serendipitous part, right? You're in the right place at the right time. So we know that God gives us opportunities, especially if we're in position for them. But when we're presented with an opportunity, we can do three things. We can seize it, we can refuse it, or we can fiddle around and do nothing. And so that's what I'm gonna talk about next. So Leonard Ravenhill made a comment. He said, the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized within the lifetime of the opportunity. I like that. The, the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized within the lifetime of the opportunity which means opportunities actually have expiration dates. Right. You ever had something come up as an opportunity and you waited too long to make a decision and then it wasn't there anymore? Mm -hmm. It had an expiration date. So I'm going to go back to Matthew 25. Be looking at 14. And this is something that I, I talked about also on, on Sunday. It says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And we know he gave one five, he gave um, he gave two, and then he gave the one. So I'm going to just skip to verse 19. It says, Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. They had an opportunity, but that opportunity had an expiration date. The expiration date was when the boss showed back up. Right? When the master returned, you had to have already taken advantage of this opportunity. And obviously, the guy with the one talent had not done that. Right? He messed up. So his expiration time came, and he was punished. 
because he had not done what he was supposed to do. I'm not saying God's going to punish you if you miss your expiration date, but it's obvious that this guy was afraid. He was afraid that he would go out and he would lose the one talent he was given. So instead of taking the opportunity to try to increase it in some way, he hid it in the ground. And then the master returned and his expiration date had arrived. If you think about David and Goliath, the opportunity to slay Goliath came in a very short window and there was only one shot, so to speak, you know? But it's like there was an expiration date on that opportunity. And if David hadn't gone out there and done it, he might not have had another opportunity. So there was an expiration date on it. Mm, I'm gonna read out of Mark 10, another example of something where there's an expiration date. Mark 10, 17. It said, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him, and this is Jesus, and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, I've kept all of these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But at these words, his face fell and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. Mm. He had an opportunity there, right? Jesus told him exactly what he needed to do. And he said, Ugh. and there was a very short window on that opportunity. And he missed it. He missed it. Now, Peter did take his opportunity walking on the water, right? Everybody in the boat had the opportunity. Peter was the only one who did it but there was definitely an expiration date on that one because eventually Jesus was going to get to the boat. So you had to do it before Jesus got to the boat. And so Peter had the faith and he stepped out and he did it. You know, he might have faltered a little bit there toward the end, but that's okay. Peter had the faith to get out there and do it. Nobody else in the boat did. So they missed that opportunity. And um, I was going to read you something. This is out of In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. And this is, this is a chapter that he calls Playing It Safe is Risky. He says, I have a friend, Lee, who pastors one of the fastest growing churches in America. Lee doesn't look like your typical pastor. He doesn't dress like your typical pastor. He has no formal training for ministry. But I know a few people who are being used by God, like my unqualified and inexperienced friend, and it started with a calculated risk that he took about 10 years ago. Lee was on the executive track at Microsoft, making well into the six digits. But even more significantly, he had accumulated 16,000 share options valued at several million dollars. Not shabby. And that's when he started sensing God calling him to plant a church. 
I'm not sure my friend could have come up with several, I'm, I'm sure my friend could have come up with several million excuses not to pursue church planting. All of it tied to the Microsoft stock, right? His boss actually offered him a promotion and an even fatter paycheck if he would stay at Microsoft. But my friend quit his job and took a church planting position paying $26,000 a year. Not only did he take a pay cut, he also forfeited his stock options. He lost all those millions of dollars. Now here's what rocked my world. When Lee gave up his 16,000 share options, he made one request of God. Give me one soul for every share of stock I'm giving up. God is well on his way to answering that prayer. At last count, the church he serves as pastor is averaging more than 6,000 people in weekly attendance. Wow. He had an opportunity. In, in worldly terms, that was an expensive opportunity. It was out of the latitude of acceptability, wasn't it? Yeah. It's like, no, you've got all these millions of dollars. You work at Microsoft, why don't you just give the money to somebody and let them plant the church? That's the world's solution, but that's not what God asked him to do. And he did it. So he seized that opportunity, right? And I'm thinking he's far more fulfilled now than he was when he was working at Microsoft because he's doing what God wanted him to do. And that makes all the difference, right? Okay, well that's for the people who actually seize the opportunity, but what if we refuse an opportunity that's sent by God? You know, fear. I don't know, is the time right? Can I do this? I don't know. What will others think? Because a lot of times it's not gonna make sense to other people, right? But in Ecclesiastes, it says, he who observes the wind will not sow, and who regards the clouds will not reap. You can't wait for the time to absolutely be perfect for everything. All right? And a lot of times when God sends you these opportunities, it might not look like the best time to do it. So, but if you are waiting for everything to line up and be perfect, you're going to be waiting forever. And the whole thing about fear, it's like in Timothy, right, it says that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So where does the fear come from? The devil. Because the devil is a fear monger. You know what he really wants? What he really wants is to try to get us as followers of Jesus to give place to fear in our lives. Because if we're afraid of something, we have a tendency to run the other way. You know, if you're out in the jungle and a big tiger, you know, jumps out of a tree, you're probably not going to chase the tiger. You're probably going to go the other way. Because fear will rise up in you and you think, I need to preserve myself. So the devil knows that. And so he tries to get us to have fear about what's being presented. But we know God never gives us a spirit of fear. It doesn't come from God. And if you feel fear about something, you've got to know where it's coming from. Because the devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Right? The Holy Spirit comes to give us, in the Passion it says, mighty power, love, and self-control. But it's all in how we look at it. There was this study that was done of people who won... Um, 
who won either gold, silver, or bronze medals in the Olympics. And so we know that gold is first, silver is second place, and bronze is third. And they found something interesting. They found that of those three, that the bronze medalists were actually the happiest. Yeah, you think, why is that? It's because they looked at it and said, wow, I got a medal. The person who wins second, the silver medalist, most unhappy. Because they were looking at it and saying, man, if I'd just been faster, just a little bit, or if I'd lifted a little bit more weights, or if I'd done a little bit more, I could have been up there. So not necessarily focusing on the right things, right? So how we feel about an opportunity could determine what we focus on. So what we need to focus on is that God promised to help us. You know, if you're going to feel, if you're going to accept an opportunity, if you're going to seize it, then you have to trust God. Um, and in Psalm 119, verse 133, this is in the Passion. It says, prepare before me a path filled with your promises, and don't allow even one sin to have dominion over me. You like that? A path filled with your promises. I trust that. I trust God's promises. Yeah. If he says he has a path for me, and it's filled with his promises, that's cool. Yeah. Because I can trust in that, and I know that God will do what he says, because God cannot lie. He cannot lie. And in Psalm 37.5 in the Passion, it says, give God the right to direct your life. And as you trust him along the way, you'll find he pulled it off perfectly. I like that. He pulled it off perfectly. It might not be how we thought it was going to happen, but he will pull it off perfectly. But we were bought with a price. He has the right to direct our lives. You know? He really does. He does. So we need to have faith and know that it depends on God, but we need to work like it's all on us, right? Because <laughs> we're the ones down here doing the work. But we know that God actually is doing that path with promises. And if we walk on the path that he has for us, we're going to be successful. So what about those who fiddle around and do nothing about an opportunity? I submit that they don't realize they serve a God with unlimited resources. You know, they just can't make up their mind. It's like, well, should I do this or should I not do this? And we've had students like this before, and they'll think, well, I, I don't know, God might be calling me to do this, but, but if I did that, I'd have to give this up, and then I'd have to move, and then I don't know. And so they just sit there and they go back and forth and they go back and forth and eventually the opportunity expires. It has its expiration date. And I think this is because they're very self-conscious about the possibility of failure. As most of us are, right? And I read this definition one time and it has stuck with me for years. And it's somebody who said, what others will think is the boogeyman of self-centeredness. What other people will think is the boogeyman of self-centeredness. In other words, you care about yourself. Not about what God's telling you to do. 
And so Jesus said to become like little children. Pretty sure I remember reading that. And it's interesting because this actually popped up in my Facebook feed a couple of days ago. And it's a picture of Matthew when he was younger. And he used to take this sand bucket and put it on top of his head and use the little, little thing. I'm sorry, son. And with the little thing around. And then he had like this um, plastic sword and he would pretend he was a medieval knight. And he would run around and play. And it was wonderful. Obviously, he would not do that anymore. He's 15. Everything matters. But he's not alone in that. How many of us would be willing to strap the, the little bucket on our head and go around and pretend to be a medieval knight? Not many of us. And this is because we grow up to be self-conscious unless we decide not to be. But we're very self-conscious. What will people think? That latitude of accessibility. I'm sorry, acceptability. What is acceptable? What's not acceptable? Having me run around with a bucket on my head as an adult is probably not acceptable. But really, who cares? Who cares? If you're taking your cues about what you ought to do from somebody whose, whose advice you probably wouldn't want, why? Why? Because he said become like little children. Little children are trusting. Little children are not self-conscious. Little children don't sit around and wonder what people are thinking. That's who we're supposed to be. And another reason not to waffle when God gives you opportunities, remember that little verse in Revelation that says, because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God doesn't like people not being hot or cold. He doesn't like that. Either take the opportunity or reject it, but don't just sit around and fiddle about it until it's gone. God doesn't like that at all. And that's not to say he won't send you more opportunities. He will because he loves you. He will always send you more. But you need to decide if you're going to seize the opportunity, if you're going to reject it, make a decision. Don't, don't waffle around with it because he, that's not what he really likes. But you are the only one who has control over these opportunities. You have to be the steward. If you accept it, you're the only one who can see it through because God tailored it for you. You know, if God gave Pam an opportunity, it's for her. I'm not going to go in and do it because it's, it's not for me. You know, every person in here has opportunities that God has given them that only they can actually be successful at doing. They might be small. They might be big. I don't really know. We're all different. And we all fit together in the body just perfectly, right? And so he gives us opportunities based on that. So, you know, these opportunities lead us to where God wants us to be. There's some place that he, remember that path with the promises on it? It leads to somewhere. It's a place where he wants us to be. And these opportunities, they get us there. And so it's really important that we find them and that we, we know what we should be doing. They do propel us forward through our testimonies. And, you know, we get these because God loves us. 
So tonight I'd just like to challenge you to expect more opportunities because your expectation is what you'll get. If you go through life and you don't expect a whole lot, you're probably not gonna have a whole lot. It works the same in, in the kingdom, probably even more so, because we have a certain expectation of what, who God is and what his provision will be. And as we learn more about who we are in Christ, our expectation level should go up. Because it's like the song said, I'm a child of God. You know, I'm an heir. I, I have stuff because of what Jesus did for me, not because of what I am, but because of what he did. So we need to expect more opportunities in our lives. We need to pray for opportunities. We need to attract them to us. So we need to feed our minds with God's promises because that really makes the faith start building up in you. Remember, you attract what you're thinking about and what you're praying about. And so when you know that an opportunity is for you, I, I encourage you to put your trust in God and do it, no matter what the world will think. Because honestly, they don't matter. They really don't matter. What matters is you and God. That's what matters. And he's not going to ask you to do something unless it's important for you or for someone else that you meet. It could be that you're praying for someone, and if you don't pray for them, they won't get healed. That's pretty important in their lives. And it's actually important in your life, too. Because once you pray for somebody and they get healed, you know what? You got such faith for the next time. Right? That's a great testimony, and it propels you forward. So it doesn't matter what the world thinks. All that matters is what God thinks. Um, and there's this Bill Johnson quote, and it says, you know your mind is renewed when the impossible looks logical. When the impossible looks logical, you know your mind is renewed. I like that. Because for a lot of people, the when we tell them what we're doing or what we're believing for, they're going to say, that doesn't make any sense. That's not very logical. And it's like, I don't really care. It might not look logical to you, but it, it seems entirely possible to me. And I'm the one doing it, so that's what matters. So I just ask you to go chase the impossible that God brings to you. You know, this week, next week, and in 2024, I think that's next year, right? Um, I can remember what year we were in. Um, yeah, but think about 24. Remember I said, I think we're in a season of opportunities. You know, pray those things in for 24. You know, seize those opportunities. And let's see where we are next December. That's cool to think about. So let's go chase the impossible that God brings our way. All right. Thank you so much for, um, for bearing with me tonight. I'll do a little prayer before we go. Father, we just thank you that you are such a good father. And we have so much to be grateful for and so much to be thankful for. And we just ask you, Lord, to bring more opportunities into our lives to help us to see how 
we can further the kingdom here on earth. We just thank you, Lord, because you never leave us alone. You always give us everything we need. And we thank you for your promises that line the path that we're on because you are so good. And we just ask you to go with us, Lord, for the rest of this week and for the holidays. And we just say that there's going to be joy in our houses, joy in our houses this week. And we give you glory and honor for it. Amen.